Well, it's a joy and a privilege to be here with you this morning on this Lord's Day. And uh, Mike and I had talked about doing something like a pulpit exchange some months ago, back in the summer. And we we're just now getting around to doing that. And it's been something I've been looking forward to as we come to worship with you this morning and look at God's Word together. Um, as some of you may know, I'm the pastor of the church where Lisa's parents are members, Mike's in-laws. So Mike gets the privilege of preaching to his in-laws today. So you can be especially praying for them there. Um, Our text this morning will be in the book of Romans chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Romans chapter 14, 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the other who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For, this is the, for, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore... Let us not pass judgment on another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Let us pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have the joy and the privilege of opening and being instructed by it. We ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would give us understanding of it this day, that we might be found faithful in how we love one another. Lord, we live in a very divided day. We live in difficult days. And yet oftentimes, even within the church, we find that it can be difficult to love each other in ways that you have commanded us. And so, Father, it's my prayer this morning that you would allow this word to expose our own hearts, ways that we are not loving, ways that we are not giving ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters, and that you would change us And that you would encourage and strengthen us. And Lord, that you would continue to grow and shape your people to become more like you. So Father, we ask now that you would teach us and that you would change us by your spirit through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, no two human beings will ever agree on anything. We all have different backgrounds. Experiences, preferences, personalities, 
levels of understanding, that all of these inform and shape the way that we think and the way that we go about doing life. We know that disagreements are part of human nature, what it means to be human, in a sense. And especially in the day in which we live, we know that we live and breathe this cultural air that seems to be characterized by an increased tribalism and divide. That certainly has not been absent even within the church as we continue to see struggles, even among evangelicals, on how to get along and how to serve the Lord together when we may have very strong disagreements. Senator Ben Sass illustrates this well concerning specifically the political nature of this divide in the United States in his introduction of his book called Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. This is what he says. He says, there's an interesting military phenomenon that applies to this political moment. In urban combat training, there's a well-documented tendency to shift our focus from a distant but important target to a less important but closer target. If you're being attacked and your threat is 50 yards away, but a closer target pops up, you'll turn your attention to the new target even if it's less of a threat. We tend to want to knock down the easier stuff, he writes. Conversely, we want to ignore or deny challenges that are further out or more difficult. It seems clear that in America today, we're facing problems that feel too big to us, so we're lashing out at each other, often over less important matters. Now, Senator Sass is applying these, uh, this illustration, particularly to the political moment of our day, but I think what he says there, using this illustration, can certainly even be applied to the church. Since the beginning of Christendom, Christians have disagreed. We've disagreed over many things, over doctrine, over politics, over social issues, just about anything that you can think of. And today, our differences and disagreements are being amplified, certainly through portals like social media. Disagreements in the church among fellow Christians happen. When we think about these kinds of disagreements and these kinds of challenges to our fellowship and our faith, uh, oftentimes we have categorized issues in one of three ways. We, we often will talk about first order issues. These are fundamental truths to the Christian faith. You have to believe these things to be a Christian. This morning we confessed together the Apostles' Creed, and so very much everything in the Apostles' Creed would be considered first order magnitude. These are critical, these are essential to just the life of being a Christian. But then we also have second order beliefs and practices, where believing Christians, they believe the same gospel, that they may disagree, and then because of these particular disagreements, certain boundaries emerge. This is what causes denominations. You may be able to serve with a fellow brother and sister down at the local crisis pregnancy center, but couldn't be in the same church together because of your view of church polity or practice of the ordinances and those kinds of things. Second order disagreements. But then there are third order disagreements. This is where we may have disagreements and maybe different perspectives on particular, maybe understanding of end times or understanding of a particular teaching of the Bible or a particular practice, a way to, way to go about applying Scripture, but yet remain in the same fellowship. We may, we may see things a little differently, but yet be in the same fellowship, the same local church, even though we may have certain disagreements. 
One of the concerns that I continue to have as a pastor, especially in the culture in which we live, the climate in which we live, especially the evangelical world, is that we are finding more and more ways to be divided, specifically over these third order matters. Certainly there are important discussions that need to be had, important um, uh, divisions and disagreements that we would have over these second order things that we need to certainly discuss. My concern pastorally has been for some time now is seeing Christians who may disagree over these third order matters. And that continues to be stirred up among us. So the question is, what do we do when we find ourselves as fellow Christians, maybe in the same church, in disagreement over important but non-essential matters? When I say what I mean by non-essential is non-essential to the truth of the gospel. The things that we would confess as true concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, I think when we think about that question, what do we do when we find ourselves in the same environment with, of a fellow believer, but yet in disagreement? I think Romans chapter 14 is a good word for us to hear and to seek to apply. And we know that the book of the letter to the Romans, Paul wrote, uh, is really a theological masterpiece. In the first 11 chapters, we see Paul detail for us the beauty and magnitude of God's grace in great detail as he unpacks for us just the, the realities concerning who Jesus is and what he's come to do for sinners. And then in chapter 12, Paul transitions from describing the gospel in great detail to now applying the gospel, how, how the gospel enables us to live in particular ways. So you see that transition in, in chapter 12, moving out of the heavily doctrinal section of unpacking the gospel and now to a very practical. Both obviously have theological implications and teachings in both sections, but generally speaking, chapters 1 through 11 are theological. Chapters 12 through 16 are very practical. How the gospel enables us to reflect the image and character of Christ in the ways that we live out our life. And chapter 14 falls right in the midst of that practical section where Paul is applying the gospel to particular ways of life. And one such way is that the gospel brings, what he's, what, he's, what he's making crystal clear here, is when we understand what God has done through Jesus Christ to save us and then bring us into a family as adopted brothers and sisters, the gospel brings incompatible people together and empowers us to live in a united fellowship as His people. The gospel is not about bringing like-minded people already and keeping like-minded people together. It's about bringing people who are so unlike each other in a variety of different ways and beliefs and practices and bringing them through the means of the gospel into the same fellowship that we may find unity and joy together. See, Romans chapter 14 exposed a problem in Rome where specifically... Jewish and Gentile believers were struggling to see eye to eye on several different things, such as dietary practices and celebration of certain religious festivals and those kinds of things. These were not primary matters. These were not first order matters. They were important, but they weren't essential to the truths of the gospel. And they found themselves coming to, to disagreement. And so Paul writes a word to them as he's unpacked the gospel and seeking to help them understand how this would apply to their unity and their fellowship. I think when we think about Romans chapter 14, we, we may find ourselves in a situation today where the specifics of what Paul's talking about, about diet and celebration of particular days, 
may not be things that we find ourselves struggling over per se, but I think certainly the idea and the principle that we find here in the background is certainly helpful to us as we think through how to love each other well, even in the midst of our disagreements. So really at the end of the day, I think what Romans chapter 14 is teaching us is that God is glorified when incompatible people welcome each other in Christ. So the question is this, how do we welcome each other? How do we accept each other, especially when we come to different conclusions over non-gospel matters? How do, we, how do we welcome each other? And this welcome is not just simply a, let's just put up with each other. It's actually an embrace, an acceptance of. How do we do that? Especially when we may see, not see eye to eye on these third order matters. I think what we're going to find here in this text is that Paul gives us three motivations why we must welcome one another, even amidst our differences. And then we're going to see five points of application at the end. And so we're going to give three reasons, three motivations why we must welcome and accept one another in Christ. And then five points of application uh, just as we draw some some good truths out from these verses to see and help us uh, apply this text well. So let's begin with the three motivations. First of all, we are called to welcome each other. We are called to welcome each other because God has welcomed us. See that there in the first three verses? He begins talking here in these first few verses, and he begins to describe the weak and the strong, that there are two kinds of believers in the church at Rome there. there. We'll talk a little bit more in a minute about what that means. But he's saying, listen, there were disagreements in this church specifically along Jewish-Gentile lines, but, but not, not strictly so. Now, we have to remember that Jewish believers were saved out of, a, out of Judaism and a strict obedience to the law. Uh, they, they would certainly have been saved out of a, a, a religious environment where they would have had uh, legalistic additions applied to the Scripture. Gentile Christians didn't have that background. They didn't have any kind of strict obedience to Old Testament regulations. And so you can imagine the fallout when they came together for their first pig roast. What happens when they had to figure out what are we going to do because we have a whole section of the church that now disagrees on the kind of food we're going to serve at this fellowship. See, the heart of the issue is that Jewish believers would have carried a whole lot more regulations and strictness into their new faith while the Gentiles didn't have that baggage. Verses 2 and, two and 3 and five explain the situation and disagreement. Uh, the disputed matters in this context included differences of opinion over eating meat, uh, over religious days, particularly probably the Sabbath practice. And later on in verse 21, it's a hint there, but even the, the whole idea of not just eating meat, but drinking wine or anything that would cause someone uh, to stumble, he would later write. So again, Paul uses this language of those who are weak in the faith and those who are strong in the faith. To be weak in the faith was not a reference to salvation as if the weak in faith somehow had less of a salvation or were barely Christian. Not at all. It had to do with the implications of their faith, how they lived out their faith. To quote one scholar, Douglas Moo, he said, the issue here is not one who has the most faith. The issue is who thinks his faith lets him or her do this or that. That alone begins to introduce us to this principle of the conscience. Our conscience. You'll later read in verse 5 
One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And then he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This idea of conscience. Our conscience is how we speak to ourselves and reason with ourselves as to what is right and wrong. It has to do with this, this idea of our conscience being a guide, a monitor of sorts, a judge. Both the strong and the weak have consciences. And both the strong and the weak were drawing conclusions based upon their conscience, their understanding of who God is and what He had instructed them to do. And certainly when we think about our conscience as Christians, we would certainly agree that our conscience needs to be informed and shaped by the truth of Scripture. So you have two believers, two kinds of believers in this church, and it's important to note that both are Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers and believers. He's writing to the church, to those who are Christians, and now he's categorizing those who are weak in the faith, those who had sensitive consciences, and those who were strong in the faith. These two groups, the weak in faith, not predominantly so, but likely the majority were Jewish. Again, they had food and Sabbath regulations that they were still struggling with what to do with these things. Many of them thinking they still applied. Their conscience lacked the confidence to do something permitted. They had a sensitive conscience. And so they would tend towards legalistic things or judgmentalism. Then you had those who were strong in faith. Again, not predominantly so, but likely the majority were Gentile. Food and Sabbath regulations didn't apply to them. Their conscience allowed them to do what the weak could not. And because of that, they would tend towards arrogance. And so you see the conflict that would be brewing. You would have those who had weak or sensitive consciences, and they would be judgmental because they would be condemning everybody for doing anything. And then you would have those who were strong in the faith, those who had more mature consciences, we could say, and they would have kind of a chip on their shoulder. Well, look at you. You're just struggling in your legalism. And they would become arrogant. And so you could see the problem on both sides. And by the way, what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to do is he's going to put the majority of the weight here, seems, upon the shoulders of the strong. In fact, you see that in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. seems that Paul is speaking directly here to those who would have strong, mature consciences. Paul considered himself among the strong. You see, and you go to, on to chapter 15, look at verse 1. He says, we who are strong have an obligation, an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Yet Paul is urging the strong here to accept, to bear with those who would be weak in the faith. This wasn't merely a division around diets or days. Diets that you would practice or days that you would observe. It was also a division among ethnic lines. Ethnic unity was of great concern to the Apostle Paul. You see that he writes about that in other places. In other places, And had the church divided over ethnic issues, Jew-Gentile, again, that would have been disastrous to the witness of the church. And so he's concerned, yes, about these restrictions and about these practices and how they loved and related to each other in the midst of their differences. But these were also differences that were, for the majority uh, of folks, that were being drawn among the ethnic lines. And so he wanted the church to understand that they were called to welcome each other. Paul is urging this 
action of grace, even when there was disagreement. He says, let not, one, let not the one despise the other. Again, I want you to see the grounds of why we're called to welcome one another. In verse 3, he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And here's the, here's the reason. For God has welcomed him. For God has welcomed him. The reason that we are not to pass judgment, the reason that we are not to despise each other in our differences, in our, our, our uh, non-essential to the gospel issues, is because God has welcomed us all into the family. We are called to welcome, accept, embrace each other. And in our acceptance of others, we are to act as people who acknowledge that we are accepting and welcoming this brother or sister because ultimately God has welcomed them. God has welcomed them. Friends, I would just encourage you, when you find it difficult, when you find it difficult to accept a brother or sister to truly welcome someone, to love them, because of a disagreement, a non-gospel disagreement that you may have, we would all do so well to just stop for a moment and remember that this is a person for whom Christ died. This is a person who God Himself has welcomed and embraced, has pardoned their sin, has justified them in Christ. And so when we find ourselves kind of at odds and, and the friction is starting to exist and, and there's just this awkwardness in our relationship, it would do us all well to remember that this is someone who, who God has welcomed. doesn't mean that our discussions around the dinner table won't be pointed at times, but it does mean that everyone is welcome to the table as a Christian. Friends, it's not our call on whether or not we will accept another Christian. God has made that decision already. By His own choosing, by His own grace, He has welcomed all who have trusted in Christ. And it's now our responsibility, Paul would later say obligation, to live as people who acknowledge this welcome that God has extended and already given others. This is God's character. This is... This is who He is. He is a God that delights in extending grace and welcoming sinners into His midst. This is the core of the Gospel. So friends, viewing each other in light of God's welcome is where we must begin. We see each other first and foremost as those who God has accepted in Christ. Motivation number two. We welcome each other not only because God is welcomed, but because Jesus is Lord. You see that's primarily in verses 4 through 9. When the Lord saves us, we are not welcomed into a place where all our needs will be met, but, or certainly all our needs are met, but all of our desires are going to be fulfilled. But we are welcomed into a kingdom where Christ reigns. The theme of Christ's Lordship here is dominant throughout these next few verses. The word Lord is used some eight or nine times in just a period of six verses. The fact that Jesus is Lord means that all judgments are to be made ultimately by Him and not by us. Now again, we're talking about judgments. Not uh, Certainly, he, he is the one who judges those who are truly saved. But even in our understanding of of one another living out the faith. 
fact that Jesus is Lord means that all judgments are made by Him, not by us. And certainly while we bear some responsibility for each other, that's certainly the case we see throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, that there is a responsibility, an obligation that we have for each other to care well for each other, to encourage each other. All of the one another passages, certainly we would see that. But the moment that we begin to stand in judgment over someone else, over a third order issue, we then begin to take on a role that was never meant to be ours. Also, as a reminder, it is the Lord, not our fellow Christians, whom the believer is called to please and who ultimately will determine the acceptability of the believer. You see that here in the text. One person esteems a day better than another, while all esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day um, does it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains... He or she also does so in honor of the Lord. They're seeking to, Paul's seeking to remind us that whatever you do, however you live, that the Lordship of Christ ought to be your primary desire and pursuits. We seek to bring glory to Him and how we seek to live. And if we're understanding things differently, we need to understand that each other's motives are being driven, hopefully, by God's grace, to obey Christ as an act of obedience to the Lord. And whether one stands or falls in the judgment, that will be the Lord's decision. Paul goes on to expand a bit in verse 5, 6 through 8 by showing that a clear conscience means that whatever we do, we do, as I just said, because it honors the Lord. So we have to remember that, one, it's an act of obedience to the Lordship of Christ in how we treat each other, but it's also an act of obedience to the Lord for the Lordship of Christ when we are seeking to live out our faith. And maybe we're doing so in very different ways over these third order, non-essential to the gospel matters. We have to remember that we will welcome each other. We welcome each other because Jesus is Lord. Friends, your conscience may very well lead you to conclude that something is wrong when your brother or sister may not think that way at all. I'm not going to give a list. I'm not going to make it easy for us today and just hear the list of things that fit into this category. But I mean, here they're dealing with diets. Whether or not to eat meat or drink wine or eat vegetables. They're dealing with days, what calendars, what, what calendar days they should celebrate and observe in religious fashion. But we could also just, even in our decisions, our everyday decisions that, that Christians come down on very differently. We allow these things oftentimes to divide us. It can be simple decisions of what kind of entertainment to pursue. I remember a time serving in, as a pastor in Kentucky. We had a gentleman in our church. We had gone on vacation down to Florida to Disney World and came back. And he was appalled that we would have gone to an amusement park. And he was asking me all these questions about why would you go to an amusement park and spend time there. It kind of took me aback. And we had to sort through that a bit. He's a great brother in the Lord, and we had to have a, a good discussion, and, a, and, and we worked things through that discussion, and we're able to still care for each other in that way, even though we were very different on our conclusions on how to enjoy particular entertainment, movies, music, whether or not to have a tattoo, all these kinds of things emerge in our everyday conversation, everyday lives, education of children, whether how you're going to do that, whether at home or through public or private means, 
on and on we can go. That sometimes we can just have an endless array of different things that we are deciding on as Christians. And we're not deciding just kind of neutral. I mean, there are things that are informing our conscience there. Biblical principles that are informing our conscience on whether or not we can and should do a particular thing. But the crucial thing that we need to remember is that our conscience must first and foremost be submitted to the lordship of Jesus, not to a fellow believer. Our conscience must be submitted to Christ, first and foremost, not the opinion or preferences or practices of another Christian. And that's where oftentimes we get out of line. And yet we must respect the conscience of others when we may have disagreements or conclude differently. Notice here how generous Paul is being to both sides. He's assuming that both have the best motive in mind. He said, those who are weak, those who are strong, those who are abstaining, those who are partaking, those who are celebrating, those who aren't, they're all doing it unto the Lord. Paul's assuming they have a good motive in mind. He's assuming the best of them. It's just a good reminder to us that we should always assume the best. That when a believer makes a certain choice, that he or she is doing so as an attempt to please God. There may be other things behind that. But we should begin there. We should assume that their, their desire, their best motive is that to please the Lord. And we should respect that. Even if we disagree on their application of how they're going to make a particular decision. The motive behind any belief or action ought to be the glory and praise of God, an act of obedience as unto the Lord. And friends, even in our own decisions, a good question to ask ourselves in any action, any decision that we have is, can I do this as unto the Lord? Can I do this as an act of obedience to Christ? Is this this impacting Christ's lordship in some way over me if I'm going to do this or not do that? Both the strong and the weak can honor the Lord even when holding different convictions about disputable matters. They have different conclusions, yet the same motivation to please God. That doesn't mean that that, the story ends there and all discussions should be put away. We should encourage each other, but we should begin there. We should welcome each other because... God has welcomed us. We should welcome each other because Jesus is Lord. And we should assume the best that people are seeking to obey out of an honor and reverence of God. Number three, we should welcome each other. Third motive, because we are all accountable to God. You see that in verses 10 through 12. It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Notice here Paul gives this final reason, this final motive. He states it twice with an Old Testament verse in between. In verse 10 he says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And in verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Friends, each of us will give account to God, and on that day when we give account of our lives to God, all that will matter, all that will matter is what God thinks. All that matters now is what God thinks, and all that matters then is what God thinks about how we lived out our life, not what others think. See, all our petty divisions on Judgment Day will certainly pale in comparison to what is taking place. Friends, if we thought more about that day and the fact that we will stand before God ourselves, 
we will be less likely to pass judgment on our fellow believers on third order issues. When we put ourselves in a position of judgment over other believers, we are forgetting that we will actually give an account to the one who is the judge. In matters where there is Christian freedom, our best approach would be to mind our own conscience and let God be the judge of others. Again, it is before his own master, the scripture tells us, that one stands or falls. So we welcome each other because we are all accountable to God. All of us will give accounts. So these are three motives that Paul gives us here as to why we are called to embrace and welcome each other, even when our differences, even in our disagreements over these non-gospel matters. I want us also to think through five points of application from this text that we can take home with us. You see, our, our, our divisions or our disagreements may not be over dietary rules and regulations or whether or not to celebrate a particular religious observance, Christian, certainly. But I think there are some principles here that really help shape how we treat each other. First of all, we need to welcome those who disagree with us. Welcome those who disagree with you. We need to prioritize the unity that we have in Christ and not the lesser things that divide us. Remember the urban warfare illustration that I began with. Friends, I think even in the church, even within the evangelical world, we have the tendency to focus more on lesser threats that are closer in proximity than we do on greater threats that are a bit further out. We, we get caught up with the lesser things and tend to, to lose sight of the, the greater threats. We need to remember when we consider a brother or sister that they are indeed that. They are a sibling. We should get to know them. One of the things that we should do regularly is that when we have disagreements, we should not go to our corners and drum up support for our team. Brothers and sisters, we're on the same team. We're in the same family. We've been bought with the same blood. We've been extended the same grace. We have the same Lord. The thing that God would call us to do would be, even in our disagreements, that we would pursue one another well. Get to know people. You may find that you still disagree, but you may find that you actually love them more when you spend time with them. You may actually find that you agree on more than you thought initially. When you disagree with someone over third order issues, remember who they are in Christ. Remember who they are in Christ. Right now I'm even having an intense discussion with someone over the nature of the church in baptism. They're a member of our church and they're starting to, to waver on particular views that we hold and we're having some healthy, robust dialogue and still deeply care for each other, still value each other, still see the, see the good that God is doing and see, see how the Lord is at work. So we should welcome those who may disagree, prioritize who we are in Christ first and foremost. Number two, we should respect each other's consciences. No two people have the exact same conscience. And it should not be our mission to make someone else's conscience look exactly like ours. Could it be that maybe it's our conscience that needs calibrated? Maybe it's our conscience that needs to be more in line with truth. It may, you know, maybe you are right. 
But it still, it shouldn't be our mission to ultimately get someone's conscience to, to align with ours. We want their conscience to align with the Scripture. Oftentimes our consciences will significantly overlap. But there will be places where your conscience and another person's conscience are not lining up exactly. I say this because it's there. It's in those moments when our consciences aren't agreeing. This is where the many, many conflicts emerge, even in churches. Church conflict happens because Christian A and Christian B's conscience aren't exactly aligned and they're, they're not dealing with that well. Remember that the Lord is Lord of the conscience and no one else. You are not Lord of another person's conscience. If it's a matter not explicitly addressed in the Bible or an, an, an issue that's essential to the gospel, or maybe the scripture gives some level of freedom on how we would apply something in particular in our day and time, then we need to give each other space to work out certain behaviors and decisions before the Lord. That can be hard to do. Giving each other space in the context of Scripture, most certainly. Speaking again, not over gospel matters, not over primary matters, talking about these third order matters. Respect each other's conscience. And our consciences change. Number three, refrain from a judgmental spirit. I think this is one where we all, on either side, would do well to apply. It goes both ways. You might conclude that you're free to eat anything you want, or to drink wine if you want, or on and on we can go. But listen, how you treat the brother or sister that doesn't agree with you matters. How you serve them, how you love them, how you treat them if they don't agree with you, that's important. I think that's what Paul's getting at here, isn't it? As he's thinking through, not just on agreeing to disagree, but how you actually love them and welcome them and embrace them. To bear with, he would say later on in chapter 15. Those who feel free from certain constraints often find it difficult to understand reasons why others constrain themselves. If you're strong in the faith, and the last thing I want you to do, leave here, is, all right, let's make up a chart of our church who's strong in the faith and weak in the faith. That's not what this text is encouraging us to do. But if you're one who feels freed from certain constraints, the tendency is to look on those who would constrain themselves more and kind of be judgmental toward them. Well, why would you do that to yourself? Why would you live in that kind of bondage or that kind of way? Their decisions may appear irrational to you. And the temptation exists then to, to deride them or to poke fun at them and to label them legalists. Friend, could it be that you're called to actually love them? I think it is. To bear with the failings of the weak. Not to condemn them, not to criticize them, not to look down upon them, but to love them. Sure, their conscience is concluding things in a different ways that you're, in a different way that yours is. How you treat them matters a lot. So let's refrain from judgmental spirits. Number four, willingly set aside your freedoms. Very similar to what, what we're talking about already. If someone is genuinely seeking Jesus and their conscience in a particular area does not permit them to eat, drink, or do anything, then we should respect that, brother or sister. 
And at times we should willingly set aside our own freedoms that we would openly enjoy for the sake of that brother and sister. So that we can love them more faithfully. Some may have a very tender conscience and conclude that something that someone else does is sinful. And how we respond to that is very, very important in maintaining the unity and love that God has called us to express in the local church. We must be slow to condemn them for something that God never does. Willingly set aside freedoms. Number five, we should work hard to calibrate our own conscience. Again, we must be careful to allow our conscience to be calibrated by the Bible, not by preference. Many times what we're concluding in actions or decisions that we're making is that we're, we're making them based upon experience, based upon preference, based upon what makes sense to us at the time. And if we're not careful, we'll take those reasons and somehow force biblical support under them. Certainly, we're all making decisions every day. Every action, to some degree, is biblically informed. The principles that are there that would lead us to do this or to do that. Friends, we must, that's where we must rest. We must continue to take our conscience, not to our preferences, not to those who would speak to us outside of the confines of the church or outside of Scripture, but to the Bible itself. We want to avoid, we want to avoid establishing a standard of righteousness that God doesn't. It's so critical. We need to be careful not to make non-essential matters essential. Because it's easy for churches to become flexible on indisputable gospel issues while becoming quite rigid and unflexible over matters in which we have freedom. We need to work hard at bringing our consciences under the submission of God's Word. Here's the thing. We all live out of a context that we bring some sort of baggage to the table. You may, be, you may have been raised in a very strong, conservative, fundamentalist context where non-essential matters were raised to essential matters. Or you could have been raised in a very liberal, unchurched context where there, no, there were no, no essentials. There were no, there were no first, second, third order matters. And now God, by His grace, has brought you into the same fellowship. Friends, understand that we aren't saved based upon our view and practice of these third order issues. We're saved based upon the finished work that God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. He has welcomed us through His Son, and therefore we are called to welcome one another as well. Listen, salvation is a free gift of God's grace, whereby He welcomes and accepts sinners based on the finished work of His Son in the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friend, you may be here today thinking, well, I'm not even sure about any of this because I'm not a Christian. Well, first of all, we're thankful that you're here. And this would just be a word to you that, listen, no matter who you are, no matter what sin you may be wrestling with this morning, that God delights in welcoming people just like you. He delights in bringing people to Himself who are broken so that He may change and transform them and restore them. And He does so through the finished work of His Son. If you would simply quit clinging to the things of this world and put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, this is the means by which God welcomes sinners. Put your hope in Him and find hope there. Find life there. You know, churches will always have those who are strong in the faith and those who are weak. And both groups, 
are part of the family. And friends, how we live together amidst our differences matters much. Yes, have the discussions. Yes, have the dialogue. Yes, bring these issues up. Don't ignore them. But let your primary responsibility, let your priority be pursuing people and loving them well. How you disagree matters. Jesus reminds us that in John chapter 13, verse 35. He says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Michael Byrd summed up this passage well when he wrote, Paul is bent on stressing that Jesus is Lord of the weak, the teetotaling Sabbatarian vegan Jews, and the strong, the wine-sipping, Saturday-working, pig-roasting Gentiles. If God has justified them, then they cannot condemn each other. If God has raised them up, they cannot put each other down. If they belong to the Lord, they belong to each other. If God has accepted them, then they must accept each other. Friends, we've got our work cut out for us in this divided age. And we continue to see the world around us going to all of its corners, developing all of its tribes. But we've got something that this world hasn't. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ, the hope of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. We have been welcomed by a holy and sovereign God, despite our sin. And because of that, He has given us His Holy Spirit, and He has given us the ability to be light in the darkness. He's given us the opportunity that through our unity, it makes zero sense when you have people from all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different contexts and different even beliefs about certain third order matters, and they come together and love each other. Because we have a great opportunity in this divided age to show people the true reality of grace. So let's continue to give ourselves to welcome each other in Christ for the glory of God. Paul says this later on, and I close with this. In Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7, he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another. Then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for welcoming us. We thank you, Lord, that you welcome sinners. And that you delight to bring us in. Father, we ask that as we think through these things, Lord, there are so many things that we can get divided over. First, Lord, I I pray that you would help us, help this congregation here in Arlington to be a church that is known for its unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, my prayer is that you would allow this church and encourage this church to continue to preach the truth, the exclusive claims of who Jesus Christ is is and what he's done for us and what he's going to do again in the future. Father, would you unite this congregation on those truths? 
Father, it may be on those third order matters where we, we may be coming to different conclusions over different things. Father, would you help this church stay united, stay faithful, to love each other faithfully well. Father, would you be in the midst of this congregation in a way that would magnify your glory and praise. And indeed, as Paul said, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement, may you give this church a spirit of unity as they follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth they may glorify you and the Lord Jesus Christ. That they may accept one another. And just as Christ has accepted them, they would do it in order to bring you glory and praise. Father, we thank you for reminding us and for teaching us and for helping us by your word, through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.